Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the political and economic outlook for the UK economy on this historic day when the UK leaves the European Union and enters the transition period. With Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, Sophie Traherne, Senior Political Analyst, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Hao Ranwe, Senior Investment Strategist. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Word on the Street. This one's a pretty busy one. Uh, we're covering what's become known now as Brexit Day. Um, we're going to be talking about what happens next, the Bank of England, and a discussion about the UK's dismal productivity story and what uh, what the Bank of England can do to sort that out. Now, I am surrounded by so many experts, certainly more than a brace, but I don't know what a collection of Barclays experts is. I, I, I It's not thought, a coven. I thought possibly mm. a whoop. Then I thought about a pod, but perhaps menagerie would like be a the parliament best. of experts, a like parliament a parliament of, of rooks. Yeah. See, oh. quite appropriate today. Very good. In which case, we will go with a parliament of experts. Let me introduce them one by one. Several of whom you've heard before: Sophie Traherne from Government Relations, Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, and Haoran Wei from the Strategy Team, each with their own specific areas of expertise. So, Sophie, let's start with you, if I may. It's Brexit Day. We've been talking about this for nigh on three years now um what happens today and does it actually mean what does it mean for businesses and for people across the uk yeah um so despite the best efforts of some mps uh, brexit day will not include big ben uh, chiming uh, the house of commons authority said uh, the cost could not be justified uh, but fear not there are can, uh, I, can other... I just stop stop you there because will you were explaining to me just before we uh, we started recording that somebody had an aspiration to chime big ben manually and you thought that you'd read somewhere that that might instantly kill him or cause him to explode <laughs> do you want to explain what <laughs> before we get into the meat of brexit i'm really i, I really really want you to share it. I want you to take that rather rustly jacket off, actually. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry, So, What is going to happen to the man in the street now that Brexit has finally happened? Essentially, come the 1st of February, not much actually changes. Uh, we enter the transition period, which means that the UK is technically out of the EU, but still expected to abide by uh, the rules and regulations. Um, I, I've seen it described quite well as uh, it's a standstill agreement which preserves the status quo. That's the, the transition period. What I do think we'll see is a change in tone in terms of the government narrative. Uh, supposedly, the the B word is being is being banned uh, from today uh, to show people very much that Brexit oh, has been done. <laughs> Brexit. <laughs> Sorry. But <laughs> in reality, I mean, we just moved to this next stage, uh, uh, which is the future relationship negotiations, and the narrative will be very much about trade and partnership rather than Brexit and getting a deal. Uh, moving from you know the quite emotive political language of Brexit to arguably the more kind of boring technical phase. All right, so would it, and I, 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 sh- I use this phrase advisedly, but it seems appropriate. While some people are calling this the beginning of the end, actually it might be better to refer to it as the end of the beginning. There is a lot to look forward to. There's, it, it seems that the rhetoric is about progress and how to get this done and done in a sensible, pragmatic way that's good for the country, good for trade and doesn't undermine relationships with Europe rather than it being a very political Absolutely. or politicised 
yeah. uh, debate. And that's the change of tone that I was talking about that we'll see from, from tomorrow. Um, and the Prime Minister uh, is due to give a big speech early next week uh, where the UK will outline you know, the, the negotiating position formally going forward into this next phase. Um, but as you said, you know, they don't want to get bogged down in technical trade discussions. Um, it, they want to talk about other things. Um, but So I think we'll see this change in, in tone. We'll also see a bit of a change in Whitehall. The Department for Exiting the European Union will be uh, wound up and the tra- trade negotiations will be uh, run out of the cabinet office at the sort of heart of, of government. Again, a very deliberate move away from phase one. And uh, I think, as I said, we'll know more next week. Uh, but there's been a lot of talk about the UK pushing for a trade agreement based on the EU-Canada agreement. Uh, it ticks several boxes, including the fact that it's it's been done before. Um, so it might be more straightforward. Uh, it also involves near tariff-free access for goods, um, whilst not having to sign up to extensive commitments on, on level playing field provisions, which we will no doubt hear a lot about this year that's things like rules on state aid environment workers rights etc so um you know essentially market access without signing up to eu rules uh, and, and regulations and this is really important for the prime minister brexit for him very much means the power to diverge from brussels rules uh, you know the government do not want to sign up to these level playing field commitments and the chancellor which reported in the ft recently um said very clearly there will not be alignment we will not be a rule taker um so that is very much the message coming from from number 10. now the question of a question about that so we've got this 11 month transition period the negotiations are going to carry on through that what is what is to stop us effectively doing what happened with brexit and everything being pushed to month 11 and then us coming to have to sort everything out with no time to spare yeah it's a good question um you know key moments to look out for this year that will lead up potentially to that um December uh, moment where the transition period ends. Um, I'd argue February, obviously, we, we will know more uh, next week uh, with the formal negotiation position of the UK. And then, the, you know, those negotiations will kick off and in the spring. And, and the, there are actually a few deadlines in the summer to look out for. In June, there's supposed to be agreement on two big issues, fisheries and financial services. Um, and this was a goes back to a commitment from the original political declaration, which, although not legally binding, says that both sides should uh, conclude uh, their assessments and agreements on financial services and, and come to a decision on fisheries as well um, obviously two quite political issues uh, and this obviously might get kicked uh, further down the line um, uh, not in not agreed in the summer but we'll see then in July we have the deadline for the extension to the transition period although remember the Prime Minister's committed to not extend the transition period beyond December and even put this commitment into law uh, and then it comes to what you were describing in the autumn, this this potential crunch moment. And I think things will get really interesting uh, when we see the state of play with the negotiations and whether the prospect of a no FTA, no deal, as it's been described, uh, are likely. It's also party conference season, so that uh, creates a, another... Your favourite time of my year, My favourite time of year, exactly. And there's also things like uh, American elections in November. There's lots of big moments in the autumn that uh, beyond uh, Conservative Party Conference that we'll uh, look out for. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, we'll... Well, you and the team have talked before about uh, the uncertainty associated with Brexit. It, previously, it was deal, no deal. Now the deal has been done. The fact that we're going to have another 11 months of uncertainty regarding the minutiae of trade negotiations, does that mean that this, this money that's on the sidelines that hasn't been deployed because of Brexit is unlikely to still be deployed? We're going to have to wait another 11 months? Or might we start to see money in motion back into the UK? Well, I mean, we, we don't want to be too definitive here. I think that's the first point. As you know, we, we can speculate that some of the... Um, 
some of the sort of weak investment story that we've seen uh, in the last couple of years is associated with the uncertainty uh, with, the, with the Brexit negotiations. Uh, and we can certainly, you know, Sophie highlighted there, you know, that there is still a lot to do with regards to, um, you know, our future, the UK's future you know, trading posture with the world. Uh, and that may still be deterring some businesses from investing in the economy. One of the things we'd point out is we do think, um, you know, if there's a couple of factors that um, were uh, prevalent in the UK slowdown over the last couple of years, one is possibly a Brexit factor, the other is a global factor. So the world economy slowed over the last couple of years. We actually do expect the world economy to accelerate a little bit this year. Now, you know, the Wuhan viral outbreak, you know, it's alongside the human cost, the mounting human cost, it's likely to take a, a, a quite a big chunk out of, um, you know, Q1 GDP, uh, particularly China, but also probably the world as well. That may kind of slow or deter that, you know, just push back that um, that pickup uh, in global growth a little bit. And therefore, that global factor is probably going to be a little bit longer um, to, to sort of warm the UK economy. But over the course of the year, we probably suspect the UK economy will warm a little bit um, but yeah I mean I think the sort of you know uh, we're still you know quite uncertain about a lot of things regarding our sort of you know our future state um, and until that's sorted you suspect that some of those companies that have been you know holding off investment uh, will continue to hold off. Okay now Haran let's bring you in here yesterday the Bank of England chose not to cut interest rates how do you characterize this decision are you and the guys expecting the UK economy to recover a little from this point without the help of another interest rate cut? Yeah, uh, so in the post-meeting statement, uh, the bank expects uh, UK growth to pick up a little in the first half of this year. And uh, we would uh, agree uh, with that assessment uh, for now. Uh, so similar to what Will said, a pickup in global activity, a slight reduction in Brexit uncertainty, and plus uh, greater fiscal spending from the government uh, should be able to uh, boost, provide some boost to growth later this year. Uh, given that the latest UK economic data isn't as weak as initially feared, uh, the bank judged that it can afford to keep rates on hold, and therefore its uh, its decision yesterday to adopt a wait-and-see mode for now. Uh, but UK growth pickup is by no means a foregone conclusion here. Uh, if it doesn't materialise, then talk of a rate cut will start to resurface again in the next meeting, and already we see investors are pricing a decent chance of that happening right now. Okay, excellent. And I know also that you've just written an article uh, on the UK's productivity outlook, which I assume we'll be seeing as per usual on, on LinkedIn a little bit later. So everybody listening can go and uh, find your article on that. But let's start off with something nice and simple. What is productivity and why does it matter to us? Sure. So productivity is simply the amount of output someone can produce over a given, a given amount of time. So a very simple analogy is this. Suppose I suppose both me and Will, we are carpenters. Very we're... unlikely scenario, I have to say. But yeah, carry on. Sorry, Aaron. just yeah. conjured up a wonderful <laughs> yeah. image in my mind. Though. Yeah, yeah. My wife would say I'm incapable of anything to do with that. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> right, you're both carpenters. <laughs> yes. Suppose Will can make 10 bookshelves a day. Well, I can only make half of that. So that essentially means that I'm only half as productive as Will is. Now, productivity is important because over the long run, a society's standard of living is largely dependent on how productive it is. So it's been often said that productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it, it is almost everything. And that truth can hardly be overstated. So whether or not tomorrow's generation will be better off than the current one uh, hinges a lot on whether or not they will be more productive in the future. Now, unfortunately, the UK isn't faring so well in this regard. Uh, since the great financial crisis, UK productivity growth has been exceptionally weak. More than 
more than a decade after the crisis, UK productivity remains roughly around 25% below its pre-crisis trend. Uh, in other words, had productivity grown as fast as it did pre-crisis, the average UK worker today would have been 25% richer or 25% better off. And this weakness has often been referred to as the productivity puzzle. Okay, so I get it. And the UK suffered a lot worse on this front than the rest of the developed world, which has also endured a bit of a slump. But why has the UK suffered so much? So there are two fundamental parts to productivity growth, the process of productivity growth. Uh, the first one is technological innovation itself. And then the second is the adoption of that technology by the masses. Now, a helpful analogy would be the way in which uh, carpenters moved from working with hammer and nails to working with screwdrivers. Now, someone first needs to invent the screwdriver in the first place, and then carpenters need to invest in those screwdrivers and make sure and find out how to use them in the most efficient manner. Now, explanations for the productivity puzzle usually claim that some part of their process has gone wrong. Uh, for example, one explanation is that the first part of the process has slowed. So essentially, humans are no longer very good at innovation. Uh, so to use the carpenter analogy, uh, we may not be very good at inventing new screwdrivers. Uh, other explanations lay the blame on the second part of the process. So the problem isn't that we've stopped developing new technologies, but rather we're investing less in them. Uh, so reusing the carpenter analogy, uh, new screwdrivers are always being invented today, but the carpenters just aren't using them or investing in them. Uh, further still, other explanations uh, focus on the possibility that uh, productivity may be mismeasured. So, for example, the tech sector today occupies an increasingly large share of the modern economy. But it's not always easy or feasible to measure the tech sector's output. Uh, it's not very easy to measure the contribution of Skype or WhatsApp to the modern economy today. Now, if growth is indeed higher than that suggested by official measures, then it's likely that productivity growth is also understated as well. So using the carpenter analogy again, uh, there's nothing wrong with the overall process in which productivity gains are achieved. Rather, it's just that the statistics today are failing to recognize the extra output achieved by switching from hammer and nails to screwdrivers. Okay, <clears throat> so Will, I know that you, you You've been banging on on this podcast for a long time about how difficult it is to measure the economy. Do you think that this is a productivity measurement problem? Is it all just a bad dream or am I clutching at straws? Uh, yes, it's an alluring idea, isn't it? Um, it was a great quote from Winthorpe in Trading Places. It's all just a bad dream, isn't it? But sorry, on, on that... Uh, on that Great movie. Great movie. But, uh, but yeah, so if you, if you think about um, this, uh, what this statistical framework that Haoran kind of talked about was designed for, it, it wasn't, you know, a lot of what makes up the economy today, if you think about it. So when Simon Kuznets um, presented his proposal to try and measure production uh, to Congress in 1937, I think it was, the idea was to capture, um, you know, what's called the kind of steel and wheat economy. You know, how many tanks am I producing? How much butter? Um, now, this system um, is basically reliant on someone having a, having a, something having a price, if you think about it, to a certain extent. Um, and this is so much the case um, that you could argue that statisticians, statisticians have found it easier to incorporate the so-called informal economy, um, the illegal kind of uh, parts of the economy, into the statistics than they have some of the uh, kind of new legitimate economy. So if you think about it, a bag of uh, what I think is called weed or grass, I'm sure the youth will be able to tell us that it's now called, that sounds very sort of old-fashioned, um, that has a price. But... 
a lot of the modern economy, if you think about it, um, it's, uh, you know, so if it has a price, it can be additive to GDP, it adds to consumption, so to speak. But the problem with that is that a lot of the new goods and services, um, they may be expensive to design. Once they work, they can be copied at very low or zero cost. And this means that they tend to contribute very little to measured output, even if their impact on consumer welfare is, is you know, is very large. Uh, anyway, you know, as alluring as all of this is, I think, you know, the reasonable conclusion is, yes, there is likely a bit of mismeasurement. But two points. One, um, there likely always was to a certain degree for one reason or another. Uh, and two, I'm not sure that it's sufficient to change the story that the current trend um, that, uh, you know, how Rand, you know, uh, described so uh, so accessibly um, is, is, is still disappointing. Um, so I don't think it changes the story, even if there is a bit of mismeasurement. So how Rand, we just need to invent more stuff. Well, that's the easiest way to solve it. And uh, so that, that really uh, speeds up the first part of the productivity growth process. So namely innovation itself. And granted, there are ways to speed up tech innovation. For example, we can invest more in startups and education. We can encourage more R&D spending from companies through tax incentives. We can try to make the UK a more attractive place for scientific talent. Uh, but the thing is, uh, productivity growth has slowed uh, throughout the developed world, uh, not just the UK. So this suggests that the problem doesn't just lie with a lack in UK-based innovation, but the wider world as well. So admittedly, uh, spending more on domestic innovation probably wouldn't move the dial much uh, in, in this front. Uh, it's also worth noting that the pace of innovation, unfortunately, is somewhat outside of our control. So be that's because technological breakthroughs, they owe as much to luck as to effort. So penicillin, x-rays, the humble microwave oven, they're just some of the examples of the role luck plays in achieving technological breakthroughs. So measures to spur innovation can make the next productivity boosting invention likelier, but it certainly doesn't preordain them. The, the economy isn't this sort of giant mechanical clock, and there's no inherent reason why the world will have to undergo a new industrial revolution uh, every century. So uh, basically, in a nutshell, uh, spending more innovation may help, but it certainly isn't going to be a silver bullet in terms of uh, solving the productivity puzzle that the UK yeah. is facing right now. <clears throat> so I want to stay with this, Will, if I may, because it doesn't feel to me like I'm living in a world or in a country that isn't inventing enough. The pace of change seems more frantic than ever. Every time I, uh, I look on the, the internet, I look at a news page, something's been invented, something new has hit the market, there's a new fad. It seems seems more frantic than ever. So what I'm thinking is, is could there be a, a lag effect? Are we experiencing a delay between the invention of new technology and the positive impact that it has on the economy? I remember just thinking back to uni days, something called um, Solo's Paradox, that the only place that you can't can't see computers is in the statistics or words to that effect. Yeah, is it solo or solo? I think, yeah, we're going to call him solo because... Solo. Yeah, solo. Yeah. I always thought it was solo. Okay. So, thank you very much indeed, Toby. He's looking like I always knew that. Uh, but yeah, I think I that's... thought it was brave of you to challenge me. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm always happy to be challenged, even oh, when, nice even when I'm right. Challenge. You carry on. <laughs> you carry on. Yeah, so no. I mean, Give I us a history lesson. So, we always look forward no, to that. No, no, no. So I think the example here is, and you're, you're totally right, and I think there is an example here, but there's a guy called um, Eric Brynolfsson, who's an MIT economist and, and specialist in kind of, he, he specializes in um, productivity. So I always the thought study. that was pronounced Brynolfsson. <laughs> 
<laughs> you see, it's never ending. This because this podcast can go on for a long time. Sorry, Brinnell. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, he's a specialist in in productivity, and I think he has quite a good example. So he looked, and you're going to laugh at me here, but he looked at U.S. factories switching from steam to electric power around 130 years ago. <laughs> of course, he did. <laughs> I'm sorry, but there aren't is, any contemporary examples. There that can't you could be, have but no, to. there are a lot actually. So, but this is a good one. I think it just illustrates it quite cleanly. But you know, so he argues that to start with, the productivity gains from this kind of um, from this switch um, were quite tepid, somewhat surprisingly. But you know, and actually, that was even the case for several decades. And his point is that it took the next generation um, of factory owners to totally redesign manufacturing processes around this kind of safer, more flexible power source for the gains in productivity to be more effectively reached. And the same could be true today. You know, think of the internet. You know, all those things. Well, you I was saying, that about. was exactly the example I was thinking yeah. of. The, the internet, GPS, things that were sort of developed by the government to solve Mate, specific problems. When we problems. were at school, you know, there was one computer, and anyone used it didn't get to go to anyone's birthday parties you know <laughs> so, so it was a lonely childhood for us wasn't it but but the point about this is is that you know it seems unnecessarily pessimistic to turn um, negative on the prospects for productivity just as the generation who've been immersed in these kind of general public uh, you know general purpose technologies since birth um, are coming into the workforce people like how ran are our savior I would argue it's Hopefully. You've got broad shoulders, Haran, to bear this burden. But yeah, and I think that's the um, that's the real um, point that I would um, you know I would I would I would keep hold of. Well, so now I know you were up seeing clients in Leeds this week, and there were lots of questions about what the new government was going to do to economically revitalise parts of the North. Sophie, this is really directed to you. Boris Johnson has his majority government and a lot of new MPs from the North. What does the domestic agenda for the government look like for the year ahead? Yeah, I mean, the, the election will obviously shape this dom domestic agenda significantly. The Prime Minister knows he will need to deliver for those Northern, Midlands and Welsh seats, which went Conservative at the ele election. It was quite notable in his victory speech uh, on election night. He said, you know, we need to demonstrate to the people who voted Conservative, perhaps for the first time in their lives, perhaps for the first time in generations, that we take them seriously. Um, you know, as a reminder, there were 140 new MPs, 106 of them Tories, and I believe of that 106, 54 seats were won from the Labour Party, many of these in Leave voting constituencies, many of them in, in, in the North Midlands and Wales. And these new MPs know they'll need to, to deliver if they've got a chance of re-election in five years' time. So, uh, you know, the, the big impact on the government's domestic policy, we'll hear a lot about the, the levelling up the country agenda, and essentially that's regional development, infrastructure investment, tangible projects in the constituencies that went uh, Conservative in the last election. You mentioned rail. Um, you know, this week we had the government launching their... £500 million scheme to invest in rail in the north, obviously HS2, uh, and you know the government's budget on the 11th of March has already been trailed by the chance there is a budget that will see billions of pounds invested across the country. He's called it an infrastructure uh, revolution. So um, a lot of focus on that particular agenda. Um, there's also been a bit of speculation, of course, about uh, Whitehall reform, which I can touch on in the cabinet reshuffle that's due very shortly. Please um, do. Your, your insight into this is always greatly uh, appreciated. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a bit of a, a Westminster bubble thing, and it probably is, but the, the, the wider impact could be quite interesting. Um, in terms of Whitehall reform, some in number 10, which you probably would have read about, one substantial shake-up of how government departments operate, uh, potentially reducing the number of cabinet ministers, for example, merging departments such as uh, trade and business and the Department for International Development and Foreign Office. 
but it seems like the noise around all this has reduced somewhat in recent weeks so sort of yet to be seen how, how dramatic these changes might be instead the focus might be more on the reshuffle itself um, so this is the, the cabinet reshuffle that is expected in February opportunity for the prime minister to to um, well sack when his view poor performing uh, secretaries of state um, but also uh, promote some rising stars um, people who've been quite prominent on the election campaign uh, a lot of talk about people like Rishi Sunak or Victoria Atkins uh, people that had a lot of airtime uh, in December so we could see quite a bit change in terms of government personnel in February. Thanks, Sophie. Now, Will, I was going to ask you what all of this change, particularly uh, incoming technological change, means um, to the owners of the corporate uh, sector. But I have a sneaking suspicion that you're going to say something along the lines of, well, Toby, of course, the best way to get exposure to this is to get invested, stay invested, and make sure that you're diversified. Is that about hit the nail on the head? It's a bit cruel. I am a bit repetitive, I have to admit. But yeah, yeah, that's not far off the mark, Toby. Brilliant. Well, all that remains is for me to thank our whoop of experts, Sophie from Government Relations, Will, the Chief Investment Officer, Haoran from Investment Strategy. Thank you very much for all of your insights. And thank you all very much for listening. We look forward to catching up with you again next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.